episode five. Fourth Estate presents Cook's Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. In this series, you'll be joining me on the story of my life in the kitchen, from the first jam tart I made with my mother, standing on a chair, trying to reach the aga, through to what I'm cooking now. In this episode, we'll be discussing the unbridled joy of a meat feast, tearing tender chicken from the bone, a humble feast inspired by my grandmother's kitchen in 1964, a celebration of the humble meatball. Sometimes you want to feast. I don't mean roasting a pig on a spit. It simply means you want to pass a piled-up platter of food around the table, tear at your dinner with your hands, suck bones and snap crackling. You want guests at your side, armed with tales and scandal, and everyone to have had slightly too much to drink. Feasting is about how you eat as much as it is about what is on your plate. It is rarely about greed or ostentatiousness, large numbers or outrageous behaviour, though it certainly can be, but it is about unbridled generosity and a sense of spirit. There are feasts I particularly relish, from a cheap and sticky tangle of chicken wings to a messy orgy of pork bones and spicy sauce. For me, pork will always be the ultimate feasting meat. In my own collection, there are feasts of meatballs, ribs, wings, cheeks, and a leg of roast lamb. There is a duck dinner simmering. These are by no means vast meals for twelve or more. Instead, they live up to their name simply with the bonhomie they bring to the table. They all celebrate meat, its blood, fat, and bones, and so they should. There are vegetarian and vegan feasts elsewhere in this collection. Carnivore's feast need not be about money. The cheapest involves a little more than a bag of chicken wings or a dish of well-seasoned meatballs or a platter of sticky ribs. The rule is only that it must be served in copious amounts, an untidy muddle of flesh and bones, meat juices, tracklements and sympathetic accompaniments. If there are to be side dishes of roast potatoes or noodles, pickles and mustards, then we should bring them all to the table at once a plethora, a cornucopia of good things. If such a dinner is to live up to its name, then it should probably be as much of a hands-on event as possible. Nothing should arrive at the table plated, but instead offered in our largest dishes and platters. This is the sort of event where dinners get messy, where a meal is enjoyed with a certain abandon, with food passed around and across the table. The moment when the table comes joyously to life. The cheapest meat feast of all, a mass of chicken wings and hot sauce, is one of my favourites. If you can find a butcher who doesn't trim his wingtips, the bony points at the very end of the wing, then go for them. They are the best bit. But sadly, or perhaps that should say inevitably, removed by the supermarkets. The pointed tips caramelise in the heat of the oven, turning to toffee. Their extremities may even catch a little. Chewy, charred, chilli-hot bones. Few things can be quite so delicious. The unspoken rule with chicken wings that there must be plenty. And, in the unlikely event of making too many, they are a thoroughly good thing to find cold in your fridge the next day. I use a large, wide roasting tin, 
so the heat can properly get at each wing. Overlapping, they will fail to toast satisfyingly. No one wants a pallid wing. You will need no knives or forks, only something on which to wipe your fingers. The Chicken Wing Feast If you are scaling up to feed a crowd, then increase the amount of chilies and gochujang with caution. If you are doubling, you are unlikely to need eight tablespoons of the chilli paste, but probably only about six. Taste as you go. Serves four. One and a half kilos of chicken wings, large, plump, tips on. Four tablespoons of olive oil. Six bushy sprigs of thyme. Four cloves of garlic. 500 grams of small tomatoes. Three hot red chilies. Three to four tablespoons of kochujang. Set the oven at 200 degrees centigrade. Put the chicken wings in a roasting tin. I use a high-sided baking sheet, measuring 30 by 40. Pour over the olive oil and season with salt and black pepper. Pull the leaves from the thyme and scatter over the chicken. Then tuck the whole unpeeled garlic cloves amongst them. Turn the wings over with your hands so they are nicely dressed with the oil and seasonings. Then bake for 45 minutes or till deep gold in colour and crisp. Lift the chicken out of the roasting tin and keep warm. Squeeze the soft garlic cloves from their skins into the roasting tin. Then add the tomatoes, halving them as you go. Roughly chop a red chilli and stir in. Then place the tin over a moderate heat and leave to bubble for five minutes, adding a little more oil if necessary, until the tomatoes are starting to soften. Stir a tablespoon of kochujang into the tomatoes with a wooden spatula. Then pour in 150 mils of boiling water, scraping at the surface of the roasting tin as you go. Just as the tomatoes are starting to soften and the juices are bubbling, crush them roughly with a potato masher, then return the wings to the pan, check the seasoning, and continue cooking for a couple of minutes and serve. The small family feast slowly does it. In a perfect world, I would make this a day before I needed it, leaving it to mellow overnight in its pan. Ragu is always better for a night's sleep. But even ladled onto pasta or soft polenta the day it is made, this is a splendid alternative to the classic minced beef ragu. The soul of a ragu is in the browning of the meat and onion. Take your time when softening both. The onions need to be a deep golden brown, glossy to the eye and sticky to the touch before you add the rest of the ingredients. Sausages and sauce. Serves four. Four tablespoons of olive oil. Eight, that's about 850 grams, of thick Italian sausages. 250 mils of red wine. Three medium onions. Four cloves of garlic. Four bushy sprigs of thyme. Four bushy sprigs of rosemary. Three bay leaves a teaspoon of fennel seeds and two 400-gram tins of plump tomatoes. For the polenta, 500 mils of water, 500 mils of milk, 
125 grams of fine, quick-cooking polenta, 100 mils of double cream, 50 grams of butter, and 50 grams of grated parmesan. Warm two tablespoons of the olive oil in a large frying pan over a moderate heat. Tear the sausages into small pieces and add to the oil. Leave to brown and lightly crisp, turning from time to time. The crucial point here is to let each piece of sausage meat brown before you move it, so you encourage a build-up of sticky and very tasty goo on the bottom of the pan. Lift the sausage meat out into a bowl, turn up the heat under the pan, then pour in the red wine. As the wine starts to bubble, scrape away at the bottom of the pan with a wooden spatula, stirring the sticky goo from the sausages into the wine. After a couple of minutes of bubbling, remove from the heat. Peel and roughly chop the onions. Warm the remaining oil in a large, deep-sided saucepan or enamelled cast-iron casserole. Keeping the heat no more than moderately high, let the onions cook till translucent and starting to soften, stirring regularly. As they start to turn pale gold, peel, finely slice and add the garlic. Add the thyme and rosemary sprigs, the bay leaves and fennel seeds. Grind in a little black pepper, lower the heat and continue cooking till the onions are pale brown and very soft. Don't hurry this. You should be able to crush them easily between finger and thumb. Stir in the sausage meat and the red wine. Then add the tomatoes and their juice and bring to the boil. Lower the heat to a very low simmer. The liquid should blip and bubble lazily. Partially cover with a lid and leave to cook for a good hour to 75 minutes. The occasional stir will stop it sticking to the pan. Should the liquid level drop, add a little water or stock. For the polenta, put half a litre each of water and milk onto boil in a deep, high-sided pan. As it boils, rain in the polenta, season very generously with salt and bring to the boil. Warm the double cream in a small pan. As the polenta thickens, Pour in the warmed double cream, add the butter, then stir in the grated parmesan. A humble feast. My gran's house, 1964. Cold dust from the open fires, the freezing cold outside loo, and the slow and peaceful bubble of a ham cooking on the black-leaded kitchen range. Even now, half a century later, I think of her whenever I boil a piece of ham, its fat slowly turning to quivering jelly, the meat puttering away in an aromatic bath of water with onion and carrot, bay leaves and peppercorns. Pretty sure she popped a clove or three in there too. She may not have had a bean, but she certainly kept a spice rack. It's a favourite dinner I cook all too rarely, despite every mouthful coming with deep affection and a ladle's worth of memories. My gran, Lily was her name, served her ham in thin slices with some of its broth, and, always, a dish of pickled beetroot. Not a cheap cut of meat, but good value, which is probably what she needed, 
as a working single mother of five children. I offer my recipe in a similar way, but with a tangle of pickled cabbage, whose crunchy, sweet-sour addition I prefer to her beloved beetroot, and a bowl of fried Jerusalem artichokes, first steamed for softness, then fried with parsley and lemon to crisp the edges. I can't imagine my gran ever saw, or heard, a Jerusalem artichoke, but they do seem to have something of an affinity with ham. Neither would she have appended a bottle of cider into the poaching liquid, but it's something I do regularly, and sometimes include an apple too. Both sweeten the cooking liquor, which thankfully is no longer salty as it was in years gone by. The days of soaking your ham for 24 hours before cooking it are, it seems, over. I always added a ladle of it, scented with juniper, onion and bay, to each plate. Ham with juniper and cider. I buy a piece of unsmoked ham, about one kilo in weight, tied and ready for the pot. It feeds four, but leaves little for later, so it might be worth buying a bigger piece and increasing the cooking time accordingly. Serves four, a one kilo piece of boiling ham, a large onion, two medium apples, four small carrots, one stick of celery, a handful of parsley stalks, three bay leaves, eight black peppercorns, six juniper berries, and one litre of still cider. Place the ham in a large, deep saucepan. Peel and halve the onion. Slice the apples in half. Trim and scrub the carrots. Cut the celery in half and add to the pan. Add the parsley stalks, bay leaves, black peppercorns and juniper berries. Then pour in the cider and a litre of water. The ham may not be entirely submerged in liquid. No matter. It will partially cook in its own steam and you can turn it over during cooking. Bring the ham to the boil, then lower the heat to a gentle simmer, partially cover with a lid, and leave to cook for an hour. Turn the ham halfway through cooking. Remove from the heat and set aside to rest for 10 to 15 minutes while you fry the artichokes. Remove the ham from its liquor and slice thinly. Serve with the artichokes and the red cabbage and spoonfuls of its own apple-scented cooking liquor. Artichokes with lemon and parsley. Serves four. 500 grams of Jerusalem artichokes. 30 grams of butter. Two tablespoons of olive oil. 25 grams of parsley leaves, that's a good handful. And a lemon. Peel the artichokes as best you can. They are knobbly and not the easiest of things to peel. Then place them in a steamer basket or colander over a pan of hot water. Cover tightly with a lid and steam for 10 to 15 minutes till tender to the point of a knife. Remove from the heat and halve each artichoke lengthways. Warm the butter and oil in a shallow pan over a moderate heat. As it starts to bubble, add the artichokes cut side down and leave for 5 to 6 minutes to brown lightly. Meanwhile, chop the parsley and finely grate the lemon zest. Turn the artichokes onto their backs, let them cook for a few minutes longer, then add the parsley and lemon and a grinding of salt and black pepper. Pickled red cabbage and ginger. This makes more than you will need for the ham, but it feels pointless making a small quantity when it is so useful to have around. The glowing accompaniment comes out in our house with everything from bread and cheese to sushi.
While this recipe has classic additions of mustard seeds and allspice, I introduce an element of heat with finely sliced ginger root. Mix two 750ml jars, 480ml of cider vinegar, 180ml of malt vinegar, 480ml of water, 15 black peppercorns, 12 allspice berries, 2 teaspoons of mustard seeds, half a teaspoon of chilli flakes, 2 tablespoons of sugar, 2 tablespoons of sea salt flakes, 65 grams of ginger, 4 small shallots, 600 grams of red cabbage. Sterilise your storage jars. Bring the kettle to the boil, then pour into the storage jars and leave for two minutes before carefully emptying. Put the cider and malt vinegars, water, peppercorns, allspice, mustard seeds, chilli flakes, sugar and salt into a stainless steel saucepan and bring to the boil. Peel and finely slice the ginger. You should almost be able to see through it. And the shallots, then add them to the pan and boil for two minutes. Shred the red cabbage, I like mine roughly the width of a pencil, but some like their cabbage sliced more finely, and place it in a heat-proof mixing bowl. Pour the hot pickling liquor over the vegetables, then toss everything together. Ladle into the storage jars, seal, and allow to cool. They will keep for several weeks in the fridge. A feast of bones, beans and broth. Bones are synonymous with feasting. All that goodness and savour, the way their presence turns a meal into something altogether more memorable, a celebration. Whether it's a twee little lamb cutlet or a chunky beef rib, I will always pick them up, chew and suck, winkling the last little nuggets and meat juices from every crack and crevice. When I buy pork steaks, I ask for them to be cut through the leg, so they have a central bone to send succulents through the cooking liquor. But thick pork rib steaks are just as suitable and sometimes easier to track down. The presence of a deeply flavoured liquor, meat juices only a step away from soup, is feast enough. The very presence of fork, knife and spoon will turn a single dish into a feast. The broth first then the meat and stock-saturated beans, and then, lastly, the bones. Pork with sherry and houdion beans. You will need a wide, deep pan for this. Butter beans will work here too. Serves three. Four smallish onions, three tablespoons of olive oil, four 250-gram pork rib chops, thick, and on the bone. 200 mils of Oloroso sherry, a litre of chicken stock, four sprigs of rosemary, a 400 gram jar of houdion or butter beans. To finish, 40 grams of blanched almonds, two cloves of garlic chopped, two tablespoons of olive oil, a lemon, six tablespoons of finely chopped parsley. Peel the onions and cut them in half. Warm the olive oil in a large casserole, then add the onions and cook over a moderate heat until their cut sides are deep golden brown. 
remove the onions and set aside. Season the pork with salt and pepper, then brown on all sides in the oil left in the onion pan. You can add a little more oil if necessary. Take your time and brown the meat evenly. Take the pork out of the pan. Pour the sherry into the pan, scrape at the stickings and stir them into the sherry. Then let the liquid reduce by half. Return the pork and onions to the pan. Then add the stock and bring to the boil. Add the rosemary, cover with a lid and leave over a low heat for 90 minutes. Drain the beans and rinse, then add to the casserole. Remove the lid and simmer for a further 30 minutes. Chop the almonds finely and toast them in a dry, shallow pan. Then add the chopped garlic and olive oil. When the garlic is golden, finely grate the lemon zest, add to the finely chopped parsley with the garlic and transfer to a bowl. Scatter over the pork and serve. The most useful recipes for feasting, especially those of an impromptu variety, are surely those you can easily scale up. Not all recipes can easily be doubled, trebled or quadrupled as we please. Most of the recipes in this chapter work as dinner for two or, should you wish, a whole lot more. This way with meatballs is useful when our dinner for four suddenly becomes supper for twenty. A feast for four or forty. You can buy plain, unseasoned sausage meat and season it yourself. But I prefer to use my favourite butcher's sausages, a plump, peppery breakfast recipe, and take the meat out of its skins myself. It's a straightforward enough job. If you prefer to use loose sausage meat, then I suggest you add a little interest with plenty of black pepper and perhaps some fennel seeds or ground juniper. Sausage and bacon fricadelli, onion and mustard. Serves four. For the fricadelle. 450 grams of pork sausages, herby and well seasoned. 150 grams of smoked streaky bacon. Two teaspoons of chopped parsley and two tablespoons of olive oil. For the sauce, 400 grams of onions, three tablespoons of olive oil, a teaspoon of coriander seed, six juniper berries, two bay leaves, a tablespoon of grain mustard, and a hundred mils of double cream. For the cabbage, 500 grams of red cabbage, two tablespoons of olive oil, four cloves, four tablespoons of cider vinegar, and two tablespoons of red currant jelly. Slit the sausage skins and remove the meat. Put the meat in a mixing bowl and discard the skins. Finally dice the bacon and add to the sausage meat. Then mix in the parsley and check the seasoning. Roll the mixture into table tennis sized balls each weighing roughly 45 grams. You should have 12 to 16 balls. Set them apart on a baking sheet and refrigerate for 15 minutes. Warm the olive oil in a frying pan over a moderate heat. Add the fricadelli and let them brown appetizingly 
turning them over from time to time. Transfer to a baking dish or roasting tin and keep the frying pan for the sauce. Set the oven at 200 degrees centigrade. Peel and finely slice the onions. Warm the olive oil in the pan in which you fried the fricadelle and add the onions. Lower the heat, partially cover them with a lid and let them cook for 15 to 20 minutes until soft and pale gold. Add the coriander seeds, juniper berries and bay leaves. An occasional stir will help the onions to cook evenly. Put the fricadelli in the oven and bake for 15 minutes until cooked right through. If you need to keep them warm while you finish the dish, switch off the oven, cover them with a piece of foil and leave them be. Prepare the cabbage. Cut the cabbage in half and shred finely. Heat the olive oil in a deep saucepan or casserole. Add the cabbage and cloves and cover with a lid. Continue cooking for five minutes, giving it the occasional stir. Then add the vinegar and replace the lid. Leave to cook for two minutes. Then stir in the fruit jelly and add a little salt and black pepper. The cabbage will soften in the steam. Stir the mustard and cream into the onions and let it bubble briefly, adding a little salt and a few grinds of pepper. Transfer the cabbage to a serving bowl. Put the fricadelli on top, then spoon over the onion sauce and serve. A feast of ribs, a bone on which to chew. Dinner becomes a feast once we get to lick our fingers. The sucking of digits, hot with spice and sticky with sauce, is an essential part of such a meal. The messier my dinner guests end up, the happier I am. Few dishes beg to be eaten, or at least finished, with our fingers like that of a plate of ribs. Beef or pork, barbecued or roasted, sticky with honey or molasses. What matters is that you cannot do them justice with knife and fork. My most memorable feasts have involved ribs, mostly pork, and almost always with a sauce that was both sticky and hot. The point of such seasoning is that the honey or treacle sticks to your lips. The chilli makes them tingle and smart. Pork ribs with kimchi and cucumber. Serves four. A tablespoon of fennel seeds, three bay leaves, 12 black peppercorns, a one kilo rack of pork ribs skin removed, two tablespoons of date syrup, and two of pomegranate molasses. For the kimchi slaw, 150 grams of cucumber, 250 grams of radishes, and 250 grams of kimchi. Put the kettle on. Set the oven at 160 degrees centigrade. Lightly crush the fennel seeds with a pestle and mortar and put them in a roasting tray with the bay leaves and peppercorns. Pour enough freshly boiled water into the tin to come halfway up the sides and place a metal rack for the pork to sit on over the roasting tin. Season the ribs with salt. Then place on the rack and cover the tin and pork tightly with foil. Place in the oven and bake for two and a half hours until the meat is tender. It should pull easily from its bones. 
for the kimchi slaw. Peel a cucumber and cut into slim, matchstick-sized pieces. Slice the radishes into thin rounds, then add both to the kimchi and set aside for at least an hour. Mix the date syrup and pomegranate molasses. Remove the roasting tin from the oven, take off the foil, lift off the rack and pour away the water. Turn the oven up to 220 degrees centigrade. Line the roasting tin with foil, then replace the rack and pork in the tin and brush the meat generously with the syrup. Return the meat to the oven, uncovered, and bake for about 10 minutes, then brush it again generously with more of the syrup. Return to the oven for a further 10 minutes or until the meat is dark, sticky and glossy. I sometimes brush it and put it back a third time. Remove the meat from the tin and leave to rest for 10 minutes before cutting into the ribs and serving with the slaw. The Duck Feast Sometimes a dinner becomes special simply because everything comes together so perfectly, such as when crisp-skinned duck legs share a plate with plump ivory beans and pink pickled onions as sharp as a surgeon's knife. Crisp yet soft, sweet yet teasingly sharp, this duck and beans dinner is a meal, both frugal and luxurious, where everything seems in harmony. The cannellini beans, cooked from dried, plump up to the size of sugared almonds in a simple stock with shallot, celery and bay leaves. Drained, then baked in the same roasting tin as the duck and its fat, the dish moistened with a ladle of the beans' milky, aromatic cooking liquor. The beans, their insides swollen with stock and fat, will crisp up a little in the roasting tin. Nudging against the duck comes a fresh, acid-sweet pickle of carrots, red onion and watermelon radish. You could use mouli or even French breakfast radish. You can mop up the juice from your plates, a tantalising puddle of warm duck fat, cider vinegar, rosemary and salt, with winter leaves of deep red and mottled pink, dressing them with a mustard vinaigrette. Duck with cannellini. I use legs because the skin crisps more satisfyingly than that of the breasts and their flesh is infinitely more succulent and, curiously, cheaper. If they come wrapped in plastic, as so often is the case, remove it. Dry the skin with kitchen paper and let them come to room temperature before cooking. They will be all the crisper for it. Serves four. For the beans, 500 grams of dried cannellini beans a stick of celery, six sprigs of thyme, eight black peppercorns, four bay leaves, and a large shallot. For the duck, 120 mils of olive oil, seven cloves of garlic, ten black peppercorns, four duck legs, and eight sprigs of rosemary. Soak the beans in a bowl of deep cold water overnight. The following day, Drain the beans, put them into a large, deep saucepan and cover them with water. Add the celery stick, broken in half, the thyme, peppercorns, bay and the shallot halved. Bring to the boil, lower the heat and partially cover with a lid. 
leave the beans to simmer for 45 minutes to an hour, or until they're tender enough to crush between finger and thumb. For the duck, first season the olive oil with salt and pepper. Peel the garlic and put three cloves of the garlic in a mortar or wooden bowl with a good pinch of sea salt and the peppercorns. Smash the garlic, salt and peppercorns to a paste with a pestle or the end of a rolling pin, then stir in the olive oil. Set the oven at 200 degrees centigrade. Rub the duck legs all over with the seasoned oil and set aside in a cool place for half an hour. Drain the beans, reserving a good ladleful of the cooking liquor. Brown the duck legs in a roasting tin over a moderate heat, turning them now and again until each side is golden brown. Turn the legs plump side up. Spoon the drained beans around the duck legs. Tuck in the rosemary sprigs and the reserved garlic cloves, then pour in the reserved ladleful of bean cooking liquor. Bake the duck for about 45 to 50 minutes, turning the beans over once during cooking. Serve the duck and beans with the pickle that follows. Mixed vegetable pickle. I've been making these vivid pink pickles once a week, eating them with chalky white goat cheese, tossing them into leafy salads and serving them alongside grilled pork chops. The pickling liquor makes a cracking base for a dressing with a little groundnut oil and a dash of sesame. I splash the pink juice over steamed rice too. The pickles will keep crisp and bright in a covered bowl or a lidded glass jar for several days. Serves for 50 grams of small gherkins or cornichon, 150 mils of gherkin pickling liquor, 150 grams of carrots, two medium red onions, a medium watermelon radish, 150 mils of cider vinegar, 125 mils of white wine vinegar, 15 black peppercorns, half a teaspoon of white peppercorns, a teaspoon of sea salt, and half a teaspoon of sugar. Cut the cornichon in half lengthways, reserving 150 mils of the cooking liquor from the jar. Peel the carrots, slice them very thinly, then add them to the cornichon. Peel the red onions, then slice into very thin rounds. Separate the rings and add to the carrots. Peel and very finely slice the radish, then cut each slice into quarters. Add to the carrots and onions and set aside. Put the reserved pickling liquor, cider and wine vinegars, black and white peppercorns, the salt and sugar into a small stainless steel saucepan and bring to the boil. Pour over the sliced vegetables and cover with a plate. Refrigerate for four hours, preferably overnight. A celebration of meatballs. There is much happiness to be had from a plate of meatballs a long simmered sauce and a mound of fluffy mash. We need to rest homemade meatballs in the fridge before we attempt to cook them, as we should rissoles, patties and other little cakes that seem destined to fall apart in the pan. And once they are in the pan, which should be hot and shallow and with enough patina to prevent anything sticking, it is crucial not to tinker, prod and poke. Leave them be, sizzling merrily, 
giving them time to form the essential sticky crust that will help them hold together. Then, as you turn them to brown the other side, hold the meatballs in place on the palette knife with your finger and flip them over quickly before they have time to even consider falling apart. You could, I suppose, introduce a binder such as beaten egg yolk to hold the minced meat or fish together, but that is too often detectable in the finished dish. So a good half hour's rest in the fridge and a small amount of care during the initial browning is probably a better idea. I mention this only because it is a question that I am asked as someone surveys their meatballs collapsing before their eyes. It is often a sign that the mince was too coarse, but is better than the sort of meatball you could throw at a wall. Test the consistency of the mixture by squeezing a lump of meat and aromatics together in your hand and rolling it into a ball. It should just hold together when you put it on the table. If it doesn't, you need a finer mince. Braised pork meatballs with rib ragu sauce. Use any leftover sauce for pasta the next day. You will need a very large pan for this. If you serve this with mashed parsnip or swede, work on about 1.2 kilos of roots and a good knob of butter. Serves four, three tablespoons of olive oil plus a little extra. Six small pork ribs, baby back, about 500 grams. 450 grams of onions and 450 grams of carrots. 200 grams of celery, two cloves of garlic, eight sprigs of thyme, 300 grams of chestnut mushrooms, three tablespoons of flour, one and a half litres of chicken stock, 400 grams of smoked streaky bacon, and 900 grams of minced pork. Warm the three tablespoons of olive oil in a large deep casserole, add the pork ribs and brown them on all sides, remove from the pan and set aside. Peel, halve and roughly chop the onions. Scrub the carrots, cut into small dice, then add to the onions. You may need to add a little more oil. Chop the celery into similar sized pieces. Peel and finely slice the garlic. Pull the leaves from the thyme sprigs and chop. Add the vegetables to the pan, stir in half the thyme and cook for about 15 minutes over a moderate heat, stirring in any meat juices from the ribs as you go. Set the oven at 180 degrees centigrade. Finely slice the mushrooms, add to the vegetables and cook for a couple of minutes. Add the flour, stir and let it cook for a couple of minutes then pour in the stock and season with salt and black pepper. When the sauce has come to the boil, return the ribs to the pan, cover with a lid and place in the oven. Leave for an hour, stirring occasionally. Cut the bacon into small pieces and fry till crisp. Add the minced pork to the reserved thyme, then add the bacon and season with salt and pepper. Combine the ingredients and roll into 12 large balls, flattening the top. Refrigerate for a minimum of 30 minutes, and if you fail to do this, they will fall apart. Warm a little more oil in the pan in which you cook the bacon, add the chilled meatballs, and lightly brown them all over. Remove the sauce from the oven, 
and pull the ribs to pieces with a couple of forks. Discard the bones. The meat and bones should pull apart easily. Lower the browned meatballs into the sauce, cover and return the pan to the oven for 35 minutes. Serve the meatballs with copious amounts of the sauce and if you like, mashed swede, parsnip or potato. The leg of lamb dinner. When I was a kid, roast lamb, leg or shoulder was a feast. A once a month celebration of sizzling fat and rose pink meat clear, jewel-bright roasting juices, and, it being the 1960s, a short, fat jug of mint sauce. Lamb has long been the food of celebration. I've seen whole animals cooked on a spit, popping and crackling over the flames in the Middle East, Greece and Morocco. The copious fat, especially on an older animal, lends much smoke to the event. The smell of roasting meat adding an air of anticipation and revelry ahead. Now that less meat is eaten, a roast leg or shoulder of lamb arrives at the table to more delight than ever. I roasted maybe two legs and three shoulders of lamb during the whole of last year. They became rare and much thought about events, as I feel meat-eating should be. And as much as the classic seasonings of garlic and rosemary hit the spot, I do think the flavours of the Middle East, za'atar, mint, cumin and pomegranate, possess an exceptional affinity with this meat. I will find any excuse to roast a potato, but it is now the grains of the Middle East, the smoked wheat, couscous and millets, that I want to soak up the roasting juices. Roast lamb with za'atar and broad bean magrabia. There is a moment when you stir the hot juices from the roast into the dill and bean-flecked magrabia that make this one of my favourite ways to eat lamb. Its success will depend mostly on whether the meat is cooked to your liking, and my timing is for a rarish finish. Tweak the timings to suit your own taste. If you have any left over, the meat can be torn into short pieces and folded through frique or couscous for lunch. Serve six. Three cloves of garlic, four tablespoons of olive oil, three tablespoons of za'atar, the juice of two lemons, and a one and a half kilo small leg of lamb. For the magrabia, magrabia three hundred grams, broad beans three hundred grams, four tablespoons of olive oil, a hundred grams of radishes sliced into rounds, and a handful of dill. Peel the garlic cloves and crush in a blender or a mortar with a little salt and the olive oil and za'atar, then blend in the lemon juice. Place the lamb in a roasting tin and pierce it all over with a stainless steel skewer. Spoon half the marinade over the lamb, then set aside for an hour or two. Set the oven at 180 degrees centigrade. Roast the lamb in the oven for about an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half, depending on how rare you like your meat. Baste three or four times during cooking. Halfway through the cooking time, pour over the remaining marinade. Boil the magrabia in lightly salted water for 20 minutes, then drain. Boil the broad beans in salted water for eight to 10 minutes, depending on their size, then drain them and briefly refresh with cold running water. Pop the beans from their papery skins with your thumb and forefinger 
fold the beans and olive oil through the magravia. Thinly slice the radishes, chop the dill, then fold into the salad. Remove the lamb from the oven and leave to rest for 20 minutes before carving and serving with the broad bean magrabia. Ten years ago, James introduced me to a recipe that has become, in our house, the most hungrily anticipated feast of all. Fidoa, a Valencian pasta dish, is cooked in the style of a paella, using a mixture of shellfish and tiny macaroni-type pasta. Any very fine tubular pasta will work, such as tortini bucati, if you can get it. Good though this mixture of pasta, tomatoes, clams and mussels is, the real celebration is turning a spoonful over to reveal the gloriously smoky, sticky crust that has formed underneath. This essential detail, it feels like winning a prize, will only form if we resist the temptation to fiddle, to poke and stir. It is that, as much as the seafood itself, that is the true feast. James's Fidua, a feast of fish. Serves four. A medium onion, two clean squid, three tablespoons of olive oil, four cloves of garlic, 600 grams of tomatoes, two tablespoons of sweet smoked paprika, a generous pinch of saffron, that's optional, 500 grams of small macaroni-type pasta, such as Stortini Bucati. A litre of chicken or fish stock. Twelve large uncooked prawns. 250 grams of clams and twelve mussels. Peel the onion and cut into small dice. Remove the tentacles from one of the squid. Cut the body sack into small dice and set aside. Cut the second squid into wide strips, removing and reserving the tentacles as you go. Place a shallow pan over a moderate heat and pour in two tablespoons of the olive oil. When the oil is hot, add the diced squid and cook quickly, letting it sizzle and colour lightly on both sides. Peel the garlic and slice each clove very finely, then add to the pan, still set over a moderate heat, together with a little more oil if needed. Chop the tomatoes, fairly finely, add them and all their juice to the pan and cook for two minutes. Stir in the paprika, saffron, if you're using it, and pasta. Let the pasta toast for a minute, then pour on the stock, season with salt, bring to the boil and leave to cook for eight minutes or until two-thirds of the liquid has evaporated. At this point, do not stir again until a fine crust has formed on the base. While the pasta cooks, warm the remaining tablespoon of oil in a shallow pan, add the reserved raw squid and the prawns and cook for two minutes till lightly browned. Remove immediately. Place the clams and mussels and the squid and prawns over the surface of the pasta. Then make a loose dome of kitchen foil over the pan and leave everything to steam for two or three minutes till the mussels and clams have opened. Serve immediately. <laughs>